0: like we have another very interesting guest with us today as usual right
1: yes and our guest is a historian with some very interesting stories
0: you know history is a subject that both you and i chat about quite often
1: yeah especially when we reminisce of some of the places we've traveled to that were filled with history
0: yeah i'll say you've been having a wonderfully creative week. I'm Rod Jones, and we celebrate what people love to do creatively by giving them a voice so you can learn and be motivated from their life's experiences.
1: And I'm Angie Jones. Welcome to Thought Row Podcast. We invite you to subscribe wherever you listen, and we focus on sharing with everyone how they can think, be, and live more creatively.
0: Okay, so seeing how we built it up in the beginning, <laughs> yes. how about telling our listeners who our guest is today?
1: Well, today we're going to be speaking with Adam A.J. Shankman. He's a writer, teacher, and historian.
0: You know his uh, recent books, which he'll talk about today, yeah. have a fascinating take on American history. That Not is something for that sure. I would have expected.
1: No, me neither. It was. It's fascinating, though.
0: Well, in the meantime, how about giving us a quote? On history.
1: Okay. Well, that was a little tough because there was a lot of interesting quotes from various people. But here's one I feel like it really fits our episode today. And here it is. That men do not learn very much from the lessons of history is the most important of all the lessons of history. And that is by Aldous Huxley.
0: Uh, Aldous Huxley, author of Brave New World. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: You know, I read that book when I was just a lad.
1: Very philosophical. Do you remember anything from reading it way back when?
0: Probably not as much as I should. (laughs) It is time to reread it. You know what? I remember the cover. The cover cover really says a lot just looking at the cover. Sure. So you can judge this book by its cover. Okay. So let's introduce our guest. But first, I know you have an important message for our listeners.
1: I do. You know, we've been reluctant in the past to come right out and ask everyone. But if you're listening to this podcast right now, can you please do us a little favor and help us out? On our website, we have added a feature where you can do that, where you can help us out and help support the podcast. And it's called Buy Me a Cup of Coffee. You can just scroll down on thoughtrow.com and you will see the button where it says Buy Me a Cup of Coffee. And there you can donate as little as $1 to help us with our podcast. And we will use that money to help with production costs and website costs. So please, if you guys enjoy the podcast, give us a helping hand. We would appreciate it. And so, anyway, now let's move on to our interview with Adam A.J. Shankman. I know you guys are going to like it. It's
0: going to be a good one, he's very interesting. Hi, Adam. It's always a pleasure for us to interview an author and a
2: historian.
1: Yes. Hi, Adam. We're going to be discussing your career and your book, Unexpected Bravery.
2: Hi. It's great to be with you here today. Thank you. Well, we're happy
0: to have you with us. You know, but before we get into learning about your occupation, why don't you tell everyone where you're originally from and where you're living now? I suspect by your accent that you live east.
2: Yes, yes, yes. I live in the Hudson Valley now, in the, uh, I'm told, the mid-Hudson Valley, but I grew up in another valley called the Queens Valley, which is uh, one of the boroughs of New York City, Queens, not too far from a little Dutch village known as Flushing, which is now a very large city, obviously. Mm Mm-hmm. So when I grew up around those with those great Dutch names like Fly and uh, just Flushing and, you know, a good place to grow up.
1: Well, you know, New York is so varied in all the different cultures that you get exposed to. I would think that you had such a, a fun childhood just experiencing different people's cultures and, and also just learning about, you know, the history of New York. Like you said, it, there's a kind of a Dutch influence there as well.
2: Yeah, it was amazing, and I was close enough to the city, and from my dad's uh, Tudor house, you could see uh, what was then the World Trade Center, and in fact, my father's house, my mother and father's house, was uh, brought over before World War II, piece by piece from England, and all the five houses there were assembled, you know, like they were in England, and they were really, really, really amazing houses to grow up in, knowing that when the war started, all the houses that are in the neighborhood are all from, you know, post-World War II. And, you know, but they were done more or less the same way, I'm told. But some were not. But ours, it's like right down to the window panes. They took Tudor houses apart and brought them here.
0: Kind of fascinating. Well, they, so brought them by, uh, they brought them by ship, I'm assuming. It must have been yeah, yeah. very yeah. picturesque. I mean, I could suspect it was a good location for photography. Oh, absolutely.
2: <laughs> oh, yeah. And what struck me about living there is it was like a small town. And, um, you know, I tell my students, you know, growing up, now you can live next to people your entire lives and not know who they are. And then it was just like a small neighborhood. And to this day, I can remember everybody that lived on either side of me. And, um, you know, in places like, you know, Mulberry Street in New York City were were like that as well, Mm -hmm. where everybody just kind of knew each other. And there was a heavy Jewish population as well as African-American and Hispanic. So it was the only place on Christmas Eve you could probably get a slice of pizza. (laughs) It was just wonderful. It's a great place. Yeah. Do you have a favorite
0: childhood memory from that time?
2: Yeah, I do. From, oh, from Queens or just in general?
0: Let's just say in general,
2: in general, I would say, time I went out to Cali and Hawaii and I actually told the story to one of my kids. Uh, We were talking about the apple orchards and one of my students said, oh, yeah, I know I like grabbing myself a ripe apple. And I told him, you know, it's kind of stealing. And he's like, it's just one. And I said, well, like when I went out to Arizona, my mother told me if everyone threw a rock into the Grand Canyon, it'd eventually <laughs> fill up. And being eight years old, I freaked out. <laughs>
0: and and heaven knows Georgia. a lot of rocks have been pitched into oh, that yeah. canyon.
2: Oh my goodness! Yes, yes, yes. And, and, and pieces when I, um, of
0: paper, pieces of paper that people wrote things that they wanted to get rid of in their life.
2: Well, I was an eight year old, I, I wasn't thinking that I could bean somebody down below there, but I remember crying about it, you know, because I you know and I wanted to go down and find the rocks because I had thrown five more before I'd gotten caught. But we were in Hawaii, and my um and my father saw the sugar cane, and I'll never forget. he pulls over, and my mother goes, "Michael, no, don't take the sugar. you know, it's a bad example for the kids." And my father bit into the sugar cane. And I'd say a couple of hours later, we were in the emergency room, and the emergency room doctor sees him and goes, Stealing sugar cane, are we? <laughs> oh. uh, his, whole, his whole face blew up. They'd put some kind of chemical. But I also remember uh, Pearl Harbor. I mean, and that was a time when there were veterans there yeah. that were explaining everything to you. There was a pool fed by the Pacific. And I just remember, you know, just I had a lot of family that lived out in California. And uh, one of them lived by Rampart, which is uh, from Emergency. Yes.
0: Wow. And also Jack Webb.
2: Oh, oh yeah. Back yep, the dragnet yep. days, dragnet huh?
0: days. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yep, yep. I mean, I didn't remember any of that. I just remembered everything about my life was Emergency. That and then later Chips. Oh, yeah. And, you know, when I'd say to my friend, you know, I'm Punch, you're Baker. And, all of the stuff. And I just remember, you know, being out in California and seeing all this stuff and I only wanted to see Emergency 51. and So those are some of my memories, you know, and uh, eating fresh coconut. Yeah.
0: Also, as a writer, that's good uh, stuff that you can look back on, especially the way you just described it, which was excellent. How about you, Angie?
1: Well, you know, let's move on to our interview. And before we get into discussing your book, let's start with you telling us why you became a writer, Adam.
2: Writing, just like reading, has always been a place of safety for me. Like I always tell my students, it's a really good book if you get transported there Mm -hmm. and you become like and you lose all sense of time. And that's how I felt about when I was writing. I mean, I was also a sensitive, like kind of emotional, you know, uh, you know, kid, And my mom was, you know, sick when I was growing up. And so I think it was just a way to express my emotions. And I mean, I don't think I ever thought I was going to, you know, be famous or, you know, I was going to be like a James Patterson or J.K. Rowling or anything like that. Mm -hmm. I also just had a very, very vivid imagination. And I think it was just a way for me to just take myself away from everything.
0: And you kind of went on to do a lot of history research. I mean, you teach history,
2: correct? Mm-hmm. Correct, correct. Seventh graders, which sometimes people go, oh, good for you. <laughs> you <know? laughs> but I love them. I love them. They're great. Their minds haven't been spoiled yet. And the questions they ask, it's like it helps my writing because they see things from different angles. Things that I, I just, you know, I'm so stuck in my ways, you know, I can't really kind of see that.
0: Well, the feedback that they get from the programming that they watch, etc., it sets their the tone for how they approach life, and I suspect you could pick up a lot from their experiences.
2: Oh yeah, oh yeah, especially around music too. When you tell them, "No, no, that's not an original song. That's like us. That, they didn't write that. That song sixty years old."
1: Isn't that funny? <laughs> they. they- when you hear like the new remix of some song, it's like, oh, that song is really old. And, and everybody's thinking, oh, it's so fresh and new.
2: Oh, Disney. <laughs> yeah, for
0: sure. Well, yeah. speaking of history, you know, history has a way of being presented in a very condensed mm-hmm. form. That's how we see it today anyway. Often leaving out the interpersonal stories of those that live that history. What do you find to be the most interesting for you as a writer when you do the research on the people that lived in that period of time or lived through those histories?
2: I once read a quote by, uh, I just remember him as Professor Gorin, and he and he liked looking at the underside of history. You know, what's going on at face value and then what's going on in the background and I think that's, you know, I mean, I grew up in the era that history was the history of great men. But those great men and to a lesser extent, and, you know, I'm not saying this, you know, factually or my beliefs, you know, a lesser extent women. We know you were not getting into women's history and all that. But all these people, these unknowns, uh, they were they were behind these great men, if that makes sense. I mean, to some of these people, their own the only testament that they even lived, it was a headstone. And you know what I look at is uh, you know even if I delve into someone like a Lincoln is what makes them human, and that's all they were. My mom used to say that you know uh, when I, you know I talk about Pete Towns and he he puts his his pants on one leg at a time like everybody else, sure. and I always used mm-hmm. to say no no actually he has someone that helps him. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, but I just you know I like to know. Like, for instance, um, in some of the stuff I'm researching now is how people like John Adams, you know, they struggled. And the feelings that I might have of feeling unworthy, you know, this guy had this too. And Abraham Lincoln, I mean, Abraham Lincoln suffered from such severe depression that sometimes he wouldn't even carry a pocket knife. And I I like to kind of, and then just the everyday people that made up society, like in Albany, um, you know, I was taking some courses up at Albany at one point, heading towards a doctorate, and we talked about gender and society. How, what gender you are, you, know, you get that gendered perspective. A woman will see history in the Civil War in Columbia, South Carolina, differently than a, a Confederate soldier might mm-hmm. see it. A children will exp- a child will experience war differently than, you know, an adult and and so on and so forth. So I kind of like to look at those aspects and just what makes someone a human with human experiences, I guess, things I can relate to.
0: Yeah, well, you know, it's really interesting because we talk about the framers of the Declaration of Independence, but very few mm-hmm. people know what they had gone through and what happened to them afterwards, you know, they think, Oh, well, yeah. are just a bunch of guys sitting around in a nice room with their quill pins, dreaming all this stuff up, which they mm-hmm. did, but their life by any stretch was no cakewalk. And they really, especially after a lot of them were murdered. A lot of them died.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of them like Jefferson, I mean, Jefferson, he was borrowing so much money at the end of his life. I mean, his, property was liquidated. He was so poor because he spent, you know, it was a champagne taste on a beer budget towards Mm -hmm. the end of his life. And then what's also interesting, too, is I, I, you know, I love getting into, you know, with the women like, you know, Abigail Adams, who's, you know, a Sojourner Truth. And I, I like just kind of delving into that whole, again, what makes them human and how different people experienced different you know, it's experienced history and some of it continues. I mean, I was researching a fellow by the name of Johannes Lefever, and his headstone is right down the road from me. Oh, and really? um, yeah, there's a picture. It's someone Someone has maintained a picture of him mm-hmm. in uniform on his headstone. And so you know, and just to stand there, you know it, but it goes back even to when my uh, aunt owned a house in this area, and I began researching it. I got to the point where I knew where everything happened. I knew where this man died, where his children were buried, and it's just like it's almost like a detective you know you're you're rebuilding their lives, almost the more ordinary their lives, the more challenging
0: I think what's important you as a writer also because you do that research and you understand their lives the the good the bad and the not so good in their lives that they experience and you're able mm-hmm. to share that in your writing and then people can live kind of vicariously through their experiences or relate it to their what's going on in their own life and they could say hey maybe i don't have it so bad after all i'm glad i'm glad I'm learning for this person but i wouldn't want to you know i'd rather not be them but i'm learning from them
2: yeah that's true you know it also worked when i was a first responder you know, I'm like, well, you know, I was having a hard day, but this person's having a lot harder of a day. <laughs> yeah, you're yeah,
0: definitely on that one. So,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's good. Yeah.
1: Well, you know, um, Adam, your book, Unexpected Bravery, is principally about women and children of the Civil War. Why was this book important for you to write and what will readers learn from it?
2: A, a lot of this comes out of discussion with students. You know, having a student ask me whether other African Americans in the Revolutionary War besides Crispus Attucks, you know, were there children that served in the Civil War, mm-hmm. and sometimes depending on how hip the book is, the textbook is, for instance, sometimes it'll you know, it'll give you a little hint about in the Revolutionary War, someone like Deborah Sampson or something like that. You know, and I find that that peaks to students' interests, which then in turn peaks my interest, because in a lot of ways, I have to keep one step ahead of them to keep it interesting, because most of us are conditioned that history is boring. And it's just the stories that, you know, have been told forever and ever. You know, and I remember being a kid and my social studies class and my social studies teacher was a veteran of beaches in Normandy and he was a medic. Mm. And he, when we got to world war two, he was, that's the first time I ever, I ever kind of was put into my head that not everybody in Germany was a Nazi. And he talked about this guy, Hans, that he knew who was a prisoner of war. And you know, and exp, you know, and that was a new perspective for me. And I think that my students kind of bring a fresh perspective and I think what I want people to learn from it is just how horrible war is and how horrible it was that there were children that started out as, you know, drummer boys, Mm -hmm. and some of them were picking up rifles at 10 years old. Mm -hmm. And Frederick Grant's, uh, Frederick Grant, um, Ulysses S. Grant's son, Frederick Grant, you know, talks about, you know, how horrible it was just, you know, loading bodies up and seeing all, and, and in a lot of these diaries that you read people talk about, you know, seeing their first casualty. And, you know, one kid said, you know, I'm walking on the battlefield and I see this beautiful blonde haired boy and is from the Confederate, you probably about my age. And he's just wearing this beautiful, you know, um, uniform that his mother probably made for him. And he said, and he looked so alive, his his cheeks were still red. And Mm -hmm. he said, after that, I just sat down and had myself an old fashioned blue hoop. And that brings me to the other point that the wonderful thing about the Civil War, if I could be liberal in saying that, is that it's a literate war. There is so much written by people, uh, diaries, letters, memoirs, and as Ken Burns said in his documentary, that – These people were making history and they knew they were making history. They were part of something big. I want to
0: make a comment about that. You know, I've read a lot of those letters and I look at my own Mm -hmm. penmanship and my own spelling and their letters are beautifully written, very articulate, tremendous command of language. They're very eloquent. They're very eloquent and they're very deeply personal written. I Mm think that is right about, I mean, that's a really interesting thing about observing how literate these people were during the civil war and how well they documented everything that was going on in their lives. And a lot of that had to do with letters that they were sending back and forth, even amongst the troops. You know, if you were in one command and somebody, your brother was in another command, you often sent letters back and forth and communicated with them and let them know what was going on. That's that's fascinating. Absolutely fascinating.
2: and I just I find that give me lots of letters, because as I say to my students, those letters were never meant to be read. So you really know that, you know, the feelings are true. there memoirs, sometimes these guys were writing them, you know, were uh, writing journals with the idea that maybe they would write about their adventures. Yeah, their histories, yeah, their I mean,
0: legacies. Right. They're writing their legacies. Right. Right. <laughs> In I mean, their the reason interpretation, Eleanor
2: burned yeah, it's a reason that Eleanor Roosevelt, like you know, burned all a lot of her letters. You well, know, especially um, you those know, or personal FDR. letters. Yeah,
0: those personal letters yeah. for sure. Yeah. yeah. You know, when I was a very, very young boy, my father said, Come here, I want you to watch this on television and it was people that were still left over from the Civil War that were marching. Mm. And, of course, they had like a little parade uh-huh. of all veterans, mm-hmm. but these were the ones that were still around for the Civil War. They were all yeah. very old men, but what they were were they were the parts of the drum and five corps, so a lot of these were mm-hmm. like 12, 13 years old. And that's yeah, why they were yeah. still able to march, you know, in that parade honoring veterans. And my dad said to me, you know, pay real close attention to this because this is something that nobody else will see, Ever again, because it's gonna pass and it'll be gone. It'll just a memory that you'll hold in your own heart and mind. I thought that really made a big impression on me. And those were Civil War veterans. Yeah. It made an impression on ago. me and
2: I wasn't even there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, but that's what I tell my students that it really it really wasn't that long ago. Like I told them that when I was born, you know, something like the Battle of Little Bighorn hadn't even happened hundred years ago. That my you know, when my brother was born. You know, the Civil War hadn't even been over 100 years. Yeah, isn't that amazing? And, you know, I had a student, I'll never forget this. I had a student, I won't say his name or anything, but his, he was living with his grandparents and his grandparents were sharecroppers from the South and their parents were slaves. Oh my! And goodness. it was just, you know, that's how, I mean, when I was a young boy, um, my dad had a friend and, and her mother lived with her in it. I mean, this woman was so old and she would talk to me about going across the dakotas in a covered wagon oh man and so yeah it's not i mean i remember world war 1 veterans and they're all gone now
0: yeah sure yeah. you know
2: so yeah. that's why what you said made such an impression on
0: me. Yeah, there was a couple times when my father did that for me, and I thought that was a very special gift that he gave because he also did that when we were in a small towns in Colorado and there were still Indians running around. And he said, you know, yeah, take a yeah. close look at this because, and, you know, by the time you get a little bit older, they'll all be gone. You know, I want to make a comment sure. in, in our educational mm-hmm. system today. And I mm-hmm. suspect this is kind of true throughout the world. Current events have an often are often a result of things that have happened in the past history. What are your thoughts on that?
2: Hmm. I kind of um, I don't I'm trying to figure out uh, what side I want to take this in terms of the past and the future. Um, That's important as a history teacher to be able to do that. And I frequently relate the relate what's going on today to what's going on, what was going on in the past and how sometimes we take that past to learn lessons about what's going on in the future. And, you know, um, as I say to my son, you know, it is what it is. And, you know, but. You know, he asked me, I mean, he's eight years old. He asked me, he said, you know, when Russia just invaded Ukraine, it's not like when Hitler invaded the Sudetenland. After I got over the shock of my son even knowing oh, what that yeah. is, right. that's the it said chills up my spine. Just, you know, that's the past and the present and how Western Europe's reacting to it, how Poland's reacting to it, how people are reacting to it. You know, and of course, you know, I take a, you know, I don't know if it's a Buddhist approach to it or what, but I always say, you know, yes, we can look at the past and see some of the present. But, you know, it's not World War II because World War II happened already. And there were specific things that led to World War II, and those people are not even around anymore. So I, I don't know if I answered your question or I took it in another direction.
0: No, and I think you did. And I'm going to jump ahead a couple of questions because Angie's mm-hmm. got a really great question. And I'd like her to ask you this one right now because I think it's very relevant Uh-oh. to something you just said.
1: Well, it just kind of uh, connects with what you were talking about. In 1905, Life of Reason, George Santayana wrote, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. What does that statement mean to you as a writer, researcher, historian?
2: And I'm going to come back at you with Bon Jovi. It's all the same. only <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think it still applies. I think that some things I always think about what Albert Einstein said, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again. Sure. Um, yes. It's expecting different results. I think in some ways we learn things but I think in other ways, I think that we're just not ready to learn it yet. You know, like for instance, you know, maybe that father figure, mm-hmm. who you know, why doesn't he recognize, you know, how he was behaving because he's not ready to recognize that yet. And maybe that's some of it with you know human beings, you know, and things from the past. But I always think about in terms of war that old Pete Seeger song, you know, when will they ever learn? When will they ever learn? And I think that's a hard lesson that we're kind of. Where we, I don't think we've learned a tremendous amount from the past because we're still killing each other in large numbers, you know. And mm-hmm. I think that. But I think on other things like the, you know, the environment and human rights and just learning how to live together in a lot of other ways, I think we're learning a lot from the past.
0: If you're um, open, if you're seeing it, I mean, part of it is you have to. Yeah, yeah, see that would it.
2: be. That's what I was going to say. Yeah, you have to see it, and I don't think some of the things like, you know, I think about students uh, will ask me, you know, well, why did this happen in history? And why are we only correcting it now? Or why are we only talking about it now? And I'll say because we weren't ready to see it. Mm. You know, sometimes when things are painful, we tend to shy away from it instead of hitting it head on.
1: True, But Um, also when you, you know the books that you're writing and also just being a historian and a history teacher I think you bring up these very relevant stories and make them livable and relatable to where your students and your readers can take away the lessons, so to speak, of what went on during those times to maybe make it applicable to what's going on currently.
2: Instead of just battles. Right. Instead of just battle after battle after battle. Right. Um, One of the things I used to do is... um, I used to, um, and it's not related to Civil War, but I always, um, well, actually, one of the things that I do, too, is um, I used to talk to my students about this book that I read about, Joe Two Trees, yeah. and he said, um, it's some, a child is looking to get a, a merit badge or something for the Boy Scouts. This is in Pelham Park in New York, and he stumbles upon this old Native American who, I think he's Algonquin, and he's he's dying, and he wants this boy to know his whole story. And he tells him his entire life. And finally, Theodore says, why are you telling me all this? And he says, as long as I tell these stories, I'll always be here. I will always be alive. Mm -hmm. And there'll be lessons from my life for other people to learn from. Now, Joe Two Trees thought he was the last of the Algonquins. He didn't realize Mm -hmm. that, you know, maybe about two, three hours north, you know, was the whole reserve. But, yeah, you know, when it makes me think about, you know, that whole thing from, I guess, the Gita, you know, I've, you know, there's never been a time when I haven't existed. There's never be a time when I don't. Mm-hmm. And I think about these children that like Edward Black, you know, died when he was 17, 18 years old. Uh, he was serving when he was 10. He was his arm was mangled when he was not even 13 and from an exploding shell. And there are lessons that this boy can bring to us you know, from the past, they mm-hmm. can still they can still speak to us from the past until still tell their stories.
0: Yeah. And today, the biggest complaint is when the power goes out and you're you can't play your video game.
2: <laughs> oh, my God. I, well, you know what? I I like when there's no electricity. I like when we could just go back and chill. But, you know, having an eight year old who does love those computer games and all that I we installed a generator. I I just couldn't take the stress when the power went out.
0: <laughs> you know, we we have we've oh, had that option on more than one occasion. We have a small generator, but we like candles. Yeah. You know, it's we like, like candles sit around and try to be ten like you can read in front of a candle, which is almost impossible yes, for me. Yeah, that's what I used to do. You know, and I remember my my father saying that he and his brother would sit in front of the potbelly stove with the door open so they could read on the floor together. They'd read the same book together. And I would say to them, I don't know how you could read with that dim light. It's true. They must've had really oh, good vision adjust. back then.
2: Yeah. I remember the blackout in 1977 in New York city and, uh, you know, just on the porch with uh, my mother and our neighbors and we all had candles, you know, going and it was a real beautiful sight going right down the common drive. We got through it.
0: Well, considering most of man's history, he didn't have electricity. So somehow we managed to get where we are today without it. And somehow
2: when the power goes out, the dog always knows. (laughs) Because it's quiet. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: Peaceful, peaceful and quiet. I'm going to go back a little bit to your career as a teacher. Has Mm -hmm. that career had an impact? You mentioned this a little bit earlier, but has that had an impact on you as a writer? And how was that? How did it?
2: I love teaching, and in fact, I was uh, heading to law school probably more to please my parents than anything else, and it was a professor who just took me aside and said, everything you're doing is history. And I said, even my grade? And she says, even your grade. <laughs> she goes, I think you should go more into history. And she said, I think that's where your passion." And looking back, it, it always was, and I was always teaching, whether working um, – actually, I volunteered at the last farm – left in Queens, the uh, Little Neck Farm, Mm -hmm. you know, I worked at Washington's headquarters in Newburgh and I did living history and all, you know, I just, you know, I love it. And as far as with my students, I remember what it was like to be a student, especially how hard it was to be a seventh grader or an eighth grader. And I always make sure that, you know, I've got those blossoming writers in my class of giving them that kind of, you know, unconditional positive regard, helping them out a little bit and telling them, you know, I had trouble reading when I was a kid. I had trouble writing. I failed penmanship. And I said that, you know, and if I can do it, you can do it, too.
0: You and I have a lot <laughs> yeah, in common. In that, in that area.
2: <laughs> they don't even teach penmanship anymore. <laughs> you know what? I,
0: I suspect you are a fabulous teacher. I just could tell, oh, by the way, you. you probably make it so interesting for your students. I, I know when I was in school, if it wasn't for wood shop and metal shop, I would have never graduated. But I did have an English literature teacher, and mm-hmm. I I got an A plus, A, A minus in that class every single semester mm-hmm. because I loved how he taught, and I loved English literature, mm-hmm. and I thought it was so fascinating, but it was because how he presented it. And I bet you present to your students in incredible ways.
2: Oh, I, yes. I'm humble about it, you know, because it's like, you know, I think I'm one of the few teachers that I know of and sex. I'll get a lot of angry emails now that but I well, that I, yeah, I I mean, I redo my curriculum every year because if I get bored, those kids are going to get bored. And I'm always fine. I you know. And I tell the students, does, history? don't let anyone ever tell you that history's never changing. And uh, I remember a social studies teacher of mine, uh, the one that had been in Normandy and, and having my first a student in my class. It was I think he was probably the first Japanese kid I ever knew at that point in my school, in my class. I went to a very small private school. And I remember that when uh, this teacher was talking about World War Two, that this child stood up and said, you know, could you please change the way you're talking about the Japanese people. And it went all the way to the headmaster and the headmaster had been on Iwo Jima uh, and, yeah. and it changed. And so that's history changing. And I learned, you know, I never learned about you no know, Japanese internment. Um And then all of a sudden started learning about that. So history's always changing. And especially as we get different, Perspectives, like you know, there's a, a documentary on how the West was won. There's a Native American one, how the West was lost. Yeah. But as far as what you were saying about English teachers, mine was Mr. Fister, Mr. Bill Fister, and he was from uh, I think Lancaster. He was Amish and he became a Mennonite, and he was he went to college. He served in Korea. He was amazing. He I, was amazing.
0: I could imagine. You, you know, I want to ask you this question in our interview, we always ask people about conversations that they would like to have had with people that Mm -hmm. were no longer available to them. And it always gets back to my, more often than not, I would like to talk to my mom and dad, or I'd like to talk to my grandparents. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that they just want to learn more about where they came from and have a better understanding of their own histories. And I'm sure you agree that and you probably I'm assuming that you probably tell your students that they should question their parents or their grandparents so they have a better understanding of where they came from and their family's histories. Do you do that with them?
2: Yeah, I definitely do. And um, like I have uh, one year I had a student from Poland and I encouraged that student to talk to their family. about it. in fact, I had a student. Vietnamese. And uh, she was going back to see the village where her grandparents grew up. And, you know, in discussing that, you know, with her and encouraging her get these stories. I think that I did a lot of it when I was a kid. My next door neighbor was also amazing. She was like an aunt to me. And she grew up by the Catskill Game Farm, which is off the New York State Thruway. And she used to tell me stories about, first of all, what the area where my dad's house was, what it looked like in 1938, Hmm. and also all the farms, but also what it was like to see the first plane fly over the Catskill Mountains. And the story that really resonated with me, and I remember it, I mean, you know, I'm 53 now, and I was probably, I don't know, six or seven then, is their farm used to be up by the Catskill Game Farm. And she said, and the one room schoolhouse was down at the bottom of the mountain or hill or wherever it was. And she said that we used to have to walk down there miles every day and we'd have to walk back. And she said and sometimes I'd carry the little children on my back or on my shoulders. And she said and sometimes my father would send the horse down to go get, you know, she referred to it as an old stallion mm-hmm. to go get the kids. And they always knew when it was time to leave because it was nice out, the horse would poke its head through the window and start chewing on Elsie's hair because <laughs> she sat by the window. And then they would all just ride back right on up. And there's it, such a sweetness, like a Walton's Mountain type sweetness to that. That sounds so nice sweet. Story. What a neat story, though. Yeah. Then this is what I did. I'd sit there on the deck, you know, and just she would just tell me stories. And, in fact, she told me that the house where our houses were was actually a family member's farm. And she said and it burned a long, long time ago. But I don't know, I never been able to to verify that. But I love the I love those, you know, I love those stories and
0: well we really um, encourage you know, people to, to tell ask, those stories yeah. yeah. to yeah. Ask, ask questions. Even if you just meet an older person in a library, talk to them. They have so much to share. Yeah. And, and you don't want to and, let but some of them slip. don't
2: want to talk about it. Like I find that some of my relatives who served in World War II, they yeah. just you know really didn't want to, didn't really want to talk about it. That was you my know, dad. Or something like that.
1: Yeah, that was my dad. Yeah. I would question him, and it would he would just clam up because it was so horrific that he didn't want to talk about it.
0: And he probably didn't want to now, lay
2: that on his daughter. Probably you know?
1: not. Probably not.
2: Well, and I found out years later I had an uncle who was in World War II, and um, you know, in the wonders of ancestry. You know, they said, you know, he was was in the European theater and I was just like, "Mm, I just don't have trouble believing that. But he was in the army. And the problem was that it wasn't a Section 8, but they uh, let him out because he couldn't take the combat. Mm -hmm. He was coming undone. And, you know, sometimes, you know, you think about, you know, during that generation, the shame he must have felt. But, you know, it's no shame. You know, you know, you did your part. You tried. Mm -hmm. You know, but not everybody can, you know, serve in battle.
0: Yeah, well, who amongst us can judge that, you yes, know, unless, you, unless you've unless exactly. you been there, unless that's you've so done tough. that. Yeah. I mean, I'm a Vietnam yep. veteran and, and, and I mm-hmm. had a piece of cake. It was no big deal for me. But a lot of my friends, it was quite the opposite. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. you know, they some will share and some don't want to share. And you just have to respect that.
2: Yeah, and that's also that's another thing. What you were saying about history, and we were saying about history changing. I remember sitting in a course on Vietnam, and the professor talking about it. And there's some older guy in the back raising his hand, and you're looking all stressed out. And finally, the professor called him, and he said, "That's not the way it happened. I was at that battle. <laughs> that's not wow. the way it happened. I was there. And I was like, and the whole clash is turned around. <laughs> you know? And he goes, but I read it in a book. And he says, Yes, you did. I'm telling you." That's not the way it happened.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, well a lot of times history is presented under somebody's personal agenda or government's agenda. You know, they tell people what they think they should hear. I you know, besides writing yeah. books, it looks like you have uh, you write and publish articles. Tell us a
2: little bit about that. Not so much much as I used to, but you know, I wrote for the Times Herald Record and the Blue Stone Press and Shangam Journal. You know, I you know I enjoy you know writing little pieces here and there. I still occasionally write for the Gardner Gazette, and you know I do have quite a backlog of articles on uh, New York Almanac spelled with a K. I really do like Hudson Valley history and local history, but I do really I'm starting to really branch out into you know, national history, I think it won't, you'd asked me at one point in a conversation, you know, why the interest in California? Mm -hmm. And that goes back to when I was a little kid, where I read a book called Samson, the last of the California Grizzlies. And it was such a heart wrenching book. And I just, you know, and I just remember just doing what my son does, you know, just looking up everything I could find in, in the library, not online about California. And that it was a it's a grizzly bear bear as the flag and you know and just you know all of that great stuff and of course you know just Hollywood and all that and the beautiful beaches and Pacific Coast Highway.
0: Uh, yeah. When we first talked to you, we were pretty impressed with your knowledge yeah, of you California. you so much knowledge In fact, of you know, California. I've been here more than we do. Well, we I've been here, here my whole life, and I have yeah. learned it, and oh. I know it pretty well because we've traveled all over it yeah. the Forty Nine Highway, Gold, and all that other kind of stuff. Sutter's Farm, we know Sutter's Mill, we know all that. Yeah, we've been but to have there. somebody else be able to articulate that from this, not from here, it's really quite interesting.
2: Well, this is just a wonderful nation and it's just, it's so beautiful in this nation. And there's so much history, like pre, you know, pre Europeans to, it's just amazing. I mean, you go out west and you go to Taos Pueblo or you go to yeah. California and you go to Yosemite. You know, when you go to these places, sometimes I'm like, I wonder what it looked like, what, how these people felt when they saw these things for the first time. Like I remember seeing Mesa Verde for the first time. And climbing up there. Um, And it was just absolutely stunning. And you just wonder, like, you know.
0: I think it's it, fascinating. It it? It's fascinating for us to think when you look at houses back east and they were built mm-hmm. in 1700, or, you know, yeah, they have yeah. a history. Uh, yeah, that's they, old. Yeah. <laughs> go really, that's that old. Because California doesn't have, not, except not, for the Indian history, the houses Spanish. in Spanish. Yeah. It just doesn't have that kind of yeah. history. You know, we're going to be running out of time. And I think Angie yeah, has. Think we
1: have a two, couple more questions. Two here. questions
0: for you. So probably okay. kind of a quick answer well, before on
1: it. we wrap it up our show is about creativity and so Adam what would you like to tell people that want to live more creatively in their lives
2: I would say find out what works for you you know my creativity might not be your creativity Mm -hmm. I think that different things inspire me at different times in my life Um, like now my family inspires me when I was younger it might have been reading a great book or or, you know, or my friends or a mentor. So I would say that again, you know, you got to find out what works for you and what stokes those fires. Okay. Perfect. That, that makes perfect sense.
0: Good answer. Yeah. And so my question right. for you is uh, you, can, if, you,
2: can you press the clapping button? Yeah, yeah, there you there you go. Go. Oh, yeah we
0: actually do have one. <laughs> uh, what would your advice be to writers that get stuck and lose motivation?
2: Uh, same kind of idea. What find out what motivates you. For me, it's reading water. It could just be taking a shower. My wife said, you're the only person that I know that could take a long shower and hop out and write, you know, write a page in a book. So uh, sleep, coffee, by some things, the way my students think, I um, mean, just not isolating and being around a lot of people. I have that tendency to isolate. And mm-hmm. I find that I love just talking to people. And I find that that will get me unstuck a lot of times, especially when I lose motivation. And sometimes, like, you just stop. I'm in that period right now where I'm just like, I wrote two books, and, you know, I want to to enjoy it now, and I just want to chill out a little bit. You know, stop and smell the roses, as Ringo Starr would say. There you go. Sure,
1: sure. Okay, well, now we are going to ask you the question we ask all of our guests, and that is if you could sit on a park bench and chat with anyone from the past, who would it be?
2: Hmm. my first my knee jerk reaction would be myself and i know that sounds very egotistical but i'd love to talk to little adam a little aj and tell him that uh it gets better as you get older and that those things you worried about they um weren't worth it but that's probably not what people want to hear they want to probably no, no, hear well, that i think uh, that's, no, I think br- that's I think kind of it's quite a cool <laughs> Tell, oh, all right. tell well, your younger self I, I, what
1: to expect and, and how to deal. No, I don't know. That's a good answer. Yeah,
2: that it's gonna be okay. Yeah. And, but okay, we'll tweak it a little bit. Maybe um Eleanor Roosevelt sitting next to me or John Lennon sitting next to me and saying, Yeah, right on. He's got the right idea and we feel the same way. I think that Holly
0: Snaith mentioned
1: Yeah, I think Holly mentioned Eleanor Roosevelt yeah, as
2: well.
0: When we interviewed yeah. her.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Oh my we love we love her estate. And my dog does, too. He's, he's, he's a bark ranger there. <laughs> so
0: cute. Well, we have to wrap this up. Yeah. And it was really a joy listening to you and talking to you. I wish we no, had more thank time. you. Yes. And you had so much to share. It was really interesting. And you obviously are very creative in what you do, Adam. And uh, your stories are fabulous. Yes. You're a storyteller. So You need enjoyed. to have your own podcast you. just where you could tell stories.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
2: Oh, I do. I do. It's called the History Knickerbocker. Oh, there you go. Oh, okay, okay, great. Yeah, it, it stops and goes, you know, when I'm motivated or unmotivated.
0: Yeah, well, that's kind of the thing about podcasts. We yeah. underst- believe me, we understand totally that. Totally
1: understand that. But thank you so much for being with us today and sharing your experiences and advice, uh, as well as collecting your own family history. Um, so appreciate that. And now it's time for us to let everyone know if you'd like to know more about Adam Shankman. We will have links for him under the show guest tab on ThoughtRowPodcast.com so everyone can learn more about him and connect with him on social media and check out his website.
0: And his podcast. And
1: his podcast. Yeah. History Knickerbocker. Thank you. You're very welcome. Also, if you're enjoying our podcast, both Rod and I would really appreciate you buying us a cup of coffee. Just go to thoughtrow.com, scroll down a bit, and you can find that link right on our website on the
0: homepage. It's really easy to do, by the way. Yes, it is. And all the money we receive goes to our production costs. Yep. And primarily because we want to keep our show commercial-free and we want to continue to bring you the best quality content with great guests.
1: That's right. Thank you for listening to Thought Row
0: Podcast. I'm really glad you tuned in today. We hope you enjoyed the thoughts and ideas we shared with you.
1: We post a new podcast every week, so remember to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss an episode. So it's bye for now from my husband, Rod, and I wishing everyone a great day.